Part two, chapter four of If Winter Comes by A. S. M. Hutchinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. He strolled in. He wore a well-made suit of dark gray flannel, brown brogue shoes, and a soft collar with a black tie tied in a sailor's knot. He disliked clerical dress, and he rarely wore it. He was dark. His good-looking face bore habitually a rather sulky expression, as though he were a little bored or dissatisfied. You would never have thought to look at him that he was a clergyman, or, as he would have said, a priest, and in not thinking that, you would have paid him the compliment that pleased him most. This is not because Mr. Boom Bagshaw lacked earnestness in his calling. He was enormously in earnest but because he disliked and despised the conventional habits and manners and the appearance of the clergy, and in any case intensely disliked being one of a class. For the same reasons, he wore a monocle, not because the vision of his right eye was defective, but because no clergyman wears a monocle. It is not done by the priesthood, and that is why Reverend Cyril Boom Bagshaw did it. He strolled negligently into the morning-room his hands in his trouser pockets, the skirt of his jacket rumpled on his wrists. He gave the impression of having been strolling about the house all day, and now strolling in here for want of a better room to stroll into. He nodded negligently to Sabre. "'Hello, Sabre.' He smiled negligently at Mabel, and seated himself negligently on the edge of the table, still with his hands in his pockets. He swung one leg negligently, and negligently remarked, "'Good morning, Mrs. Sabre. Embroidery?' Sabre had the immediate and convinced feeling that the negligent and reverend gentleman was not in his house, but that he was permitted to be in the house of the negligent and reverend gentleman. And this was the feeling that the negligent and reverend gentleman invariably gave to his hosts, whoever they might be, likewise to his congregations. Indeed, it was said by a profane person that Deity entered Mr. Boom Bagshaw's church on the same terms and accepted them. As he sat negligently swinging his leg, he frequently strained his chin upwards and outwards, rather as if his collar were too tight, but it was neatly loose, or as if he were performing an exercise for stretching the muscles of his neck. This was a habit of his. A silver entry-dish was placed before Mabel, and another before Sabre. Lojinks removed her mistress's cover, and Mr. Boom Bagshaw pushed aside a flower-vase to obtain a view. "'I don't eat salmon,' he remarked. The base was now between him and Sabre. He again moved it. Or cutlets. Mabel exclaimed, "'Oh, dear! Now I've got this salmon in specially from Tidborough.' "'I'll have some of that ham,' said Mr. Boom Bagshaw and he rose sulkily and strolled to the sideboard where he rather sulkily cut from a ham in thick wedges. The house was clearly his house. He addressed himself to Mabel. "'Now, in a very few weeks, you'll no longer have to get things from Tidborough, Mrs. Sabre, salmon, or anything else. The shops in the market square are going the minute they're complete. I got a couple of fishmongers only yesterday.' He spoke as if he had a shot brace of fishmongers, and slung them over his shoulder and flung them into Market Square. Market Square was that portion of the garden home designed for the shopping centre. Two, said Mabel. Two. I encourage competition. No one is going to sleep in the garden home. What will all the bedrooms be used for, then? Sabre inquired. 
Mr. Boom Bagshaw, who was eating his ham with a fork only, holding it at its extremity in the tips of his fingers, and occasionally flipping a piece of ham into his mouth and swallowing it without visible mastication, flipped another morsel, and with his right hand moved three more vases which stood between himself and Sabre. He moved each deliberately and set it down with a slight thump, rather as if it were a chessman. He directed the fork at Sabre, and after impressive moments spoke. "'You know, Sabre, I don't think you're quite alive to what is growing up about you. Flippancy is out of place. I abominate flippancy.' "'Well, dash it, it's my house,' thought Sabre. "'This garden home is not speculation. It's not a fad. It's not a joke. What is it? You're thinking it's a damn nuisance. You're right, it is a damn nuisance.' Sabre began, "'Well?' Now listen, Sabre, it is a damn nuisance, and I put it to you that when a toad is discovered embedded in a solid mass of coal or stone, that coal or stone, when it was slowly forming about that toad, was a damn nuisance to the toad. Sabre asked, Well, am I going to be discovered embedded? Now listen, Sabre, another man in my place would say that he did not intend to be personal. I do intend to be personal. I always am personal. I say that this garden home is springing up about you and that you're not realizing what is happening. This garden home is going to enshrine life as it should be lived. More. It is going to make life be lived as it should be lived. Someone said to me the other day, the Duchess of Wearmouth, I was staying at the Wearmouth Castle, that the garden home is going to be a sanctuary. I said, bah, like that, bah, I said. Every town, every city, every village is a sanctuary. And asleep in its sanctuary, and dead to life in its sanctuary, and dead to Christ in its sanctuary, I said. The garden home is not going to be a sanctuary, nor yet a sepulchre, nor yet a tomb. It's going to be a symbol, a signal, a shout. More ham. He paused, pushed his plate to one side more as if it had bitten him, than as if he desired more ham to be placed upon it and looked around the room before him, sulkily, exercising his chin. Sabre had a vision of dense crowds of bishops in lawn sleeves, duchesses in Gainsborough hats, and herds of intensely fashionable rank and file applauding vigorously. He could almost hear the applause. But how to deal with this man he never knew. He always felt he was about fourteen when Mr. Boom Bagshaw thus addressed him. He therefore said, Great! And Mabel murmured, how splendid! But Sabre's thought was, and it remained with him throughout the meal, acutely illustrated by the impressive monologues which Mr. Boom Bagshaw addressed to Mabel, and by her radiant responses. His thought was, I simply can't get on with this chap, or with any of Mabel's crowd. They all make me feel like a kid. I can't answer them when they talk. They say things I've got ideas about, but I can never explain my ideas to them. I never can argue my ideas with them. They've all got convictions, and I believe I haven't any convictions. I've only got instincts, and these convictions come down on instincts like a hammer on an egg. Mr. Boom Bagshaw was saying, and we shall have no poor in the garden home, no ugly streets, no mean surroundings, uplift, everywhere uplift. There slipped out of Sabre aloud. There you are. That's the kind of thing. Mr. Boom Bagshaw, as if to disclose without fear precisely where he was, 
dismantled from between them the edge of flowers which he had replaced and looked sulkily across what kind of thing sabre had a vision of himself advancing an egg for mr bagshaw's hammer about having no poor in the garden home isn't there something about the poor being always with us certainly there is in the bible in the bible do you know to whom it was addressed sabre admitted that he didn't to judas iscariot smash went the egg sabre said feebly he could not handle his arguments well anyway always with us there you are if you're going to create a place where life is going to be lived as it should be lived i don't see how you're going to shut the poor out of it aren't they part of life they've got as much right to get away from the mean streets and ugly surroundings as we have and a jolly sight more need always with us it doesn't matter tumpence whom it was said to it happens pronounced mr boom bagshaw to matter a great deal more than a tuppence it happens to knock the bottom clean out of your argument it was addressed to the iscariot because iscariot was trying to do just what you're trying to do he was trying to make duty to the poor an excuse for grudging service to christ now listen sabre if people thought a little bit less about their duty towards the poor and a little more about their duty towards themselves they would be in a great deal fitter state to help their fellow creatures poor or rich that is what the garden home is to do for those who live in it and that is what the garden home is going to do he stabbed sharply with the butt of a dessert knife on the dessert plate which had just been placed before him the plate split neatly into two exact halves he glazed at them sulkily and put them aside drew another plate before him and remarked to mabel you know we are moving to the vicarage tomorrow we are giving an at-home tomorrow week will you come the plural pronoun included his mother he was intensely celibate the day ended in a blazing roll in the afternoon mr boom bagshaw carried off mabel to view the progress of the garden home while they dallied over coffee at the luncheon table sabre was fidgeting for bagshaw to be gone mabel operating dexterously behind the blue flame of a spirit lamp low jinks hoovering around in well-trained acolyte performances said now i rather pride myself on my turkish coffee mr boom bagshaw mr bagshaw who appeared to pride himself at least as much on his characteristics replied by sulkily looking at his watch a moment later by sulkily taking a cup rather as if he were taking a schoolboy bidden to take lemonade when mannishly desirous of shady gaff and sulkily remarking i must go sabre fidgeted to see the words put into action he wanted bagshaw to be off he wanted to resume his sudden intention of remedying his normal relations with mabel and the afternoon promised better than the intention had thus far seen the niggling over the unexpectedness of his return well of course it was unexpected and upsetting of her household routine but the unexpectedness was over and the letter incident over and mabel thanks to her guest delightfully mooted good therefore for the afternoon when the dickens was this chap going then bagshaw rising sulkily well you'd better come up and have a look round and mabel animatedly i'd like to and to sabre you won't care to come mark sabre said no i won't throughout dinner mabel returned only just in time to get ready for dinner 
Sabre examined, with dispassionate interest, at the exercise of trying to say certain words and being unable to say them. They conversed desultorily, their usual habit. He told himself that he was speaking several hundred other words. But the intractable words he desired to utter would not be framed. He counted them on his fingers under the table. Only seven. Well, how is the garden home looking? Only seven. He could not say them. The incident they brought up rankled. He had come home to take a day off with her. She knew he was there at the luncheon table to take a day off with her. It had interested her so little. She had been so entirely indifferent to it, that she had not even expressed a wish that he should so much as attend her on the inspection with Bagshaw. The more he thought of it, the worse it rankled. She knew he was at home to be with her, and she had deliberately walked off and left him. Well, how was the garden home looking? No, not much. He couldn't. He visualized the impossible seven written on the tablecloth. He saw them in script. He saw them in print. He imagined them written by a finger on the wall. Say them. No. Mabel left him sitting at the table with a cigarette. There came suddenly to his assistance the fight with the stubborn seven, abreast of the thoughts in the office that had brought him home, a realization of her situation such as he had had that first night together in the house, eight years before. There she was in the morning room alone. She had given up her father's home for his home. And there she was, a happy afternoon behind her, and no one to discuss it with, just because he could not say, well, how was the garden home looking? And he thought, I'm hateful. He got up vigorously and strode into the morning room. Well, how is the garden home looking? His voice was bright and interested. She was reading a magazine. She did not raise her eyes front the page. Eh? Oh, very nice. Delightful. Tell us about it. What? Oh, yes. Her mind was in the magazine. She read on a moment. Then she laid the magazine on her lap and looked up. The garden home? Yes, oh yes, it was charming. It's simply springing up. You ought to have come. He stretched himself in a big chair opposite her. He laughed. Well, dash it, I like that. You didn't exactly implore me to. She yawned. Oh, well, I knew you wouldn't care about it. She yawned again. Oh, dear, I'm tired. We must have walked miles to and fro. She put down her hands to take up her magazine again. She was clearly not interested in his interest. But he thought, well, of course she's not. For her it's like eating something after it's got cold. Dinner was the time. He said, I expect you did. Walk miles. Bagshaw all over it, I bet. She did what he called tighten herself. Well, naturally, he's pleased, enthusiastic. He's done more than anyone else to keep the idea going. Sabre laughed. I should say so. Marvelous person. What's he going to do about not wearing clerical dress when he has to wear gaiters? What do you mean gaiters? Signs of flying up. What on earth for? Why, when he's a bishop, don't you? She flew up. I suppose that's some sneer. Sneer. Rot. I mean it. A chap like Bagshaw's not going to be a parish priest all his life. He's out to be a bishop, and he'll be a bishop. If he changed his mind and wanted to be a judge or a cabinet minister, he'd be a judge or a cabinet minister. He's that sort. I knew you were sneering. Mabel, don't be silly. I'm not sneering. Bagshaw's a clever. You say he's not that sort. That's a sneer. 
She put her hands on the arms of her chair and raised herself to sit upright. She spoke with extraordinary intensity. Nearly everything you say to me or my friends is a sneer. There's always something behind what you say. Other people noticed it. Other people? Yes, other people. They say you're sarcastic. That's just a polite way, he said. Oh, come on now, Mabel. Not sarcastic. I swear no one thinks I'm sarcastic. I promise you Bagshaw doesn't. Bagshaw thinks I'm a fool, a complete fool. Look at lunch. She caught him up. She was really angry. Yes, look at lunch. That's just what I mean. Anyone that comes to the house, any of my friends, anything they say, you must always take differently, always argue about it. That's what I call sneering. He, flatly, Well, that isn't sneering. Let's drop it. She had no intention of dropping it. It's sneering. They don't know it is, but I know it is. He had the feeling that his anger would arise responsive to hers, as one beast calling defiance to another, if this continued. He did not want it to arise. He had sometimes thought of anger as a savage beast chained within a man. It had helped him to control rising ill-temper. He thought of it now, of her anger. He had a vision of it prowling, as a dark beast among caves, challenging into the night. He wished to retain the vision. His own anger, prowling also, would not respond while he retained the picture. It was prowling. It was suspicious. It would be mute while he watched it. He pulled himself sharply to his feet. Well, well, he said. It's not meant to be sneering. Let's call it my unfortunate manner. He stood before her, half-smiling, his hands in his pockets, looking down at her. She said, Perhaps you're different with your friends. I hope you are with your friends. He caught a glint in her eye as she repeated the words. Its meaning did not occur to him. He bantered. Oh, I'm not as bad as all that. And anyway, the friends are all the same friends. This place isn't so big. Then that glint of her eye was explained, the flash before the discharge. Perhaps your friends are just coming back, she said. Lady Tybar. The vision of his dark anger broke away mute while he watched it. Immediately it lifted its head and answered her own. "'Look here,' he began and stopped. "'Look here,' he said more quietly. "'Don't begin that absurd business again. I don't think it's absurd.' "'No, you called it funny.' She drew in her feet as if to rise. "'Yes, I think it's funny, all of it. I think you've been funny all day today. Coming back like that. I told you why I came back. I have the day off with you. Funny day off it's been. You're right there. Yes, it has been a funny day off. He thought, my God, this bickering. Why don't I get out of the room? Come back for a day off with me? It's a funny thing you came back just in time to get that letter before it was delivered. There, now you know. He was purely amazed. He thought, and his amazement was such that, characteristically, his anger left him. He thought, well, of all the... But she otherwise interpreted his astonishment. She thought she had made an advantage, and she pressed it. Perhaps you knew it was coming. How on earth could I have known it was coming? She seemed to pause, to be considering. She might have told you. You might have seen her. He said, as it happens, I did see her not three hours before I came back. She seemed disappointed. She said, I know you did. We met Lord Tybar. 
and he thought, Good Lord, she was trying to catch me. She went on, You never told me you'd met them. Wasn't that funny? If you just think a little, you'd seen there was nothing funny about it. You found the letter so amazingly funny that, to tell you the truth, I'd had about enough of the tie bars, and I've had about enough of them. I dare say you have, with me. Perhaps you'll tell me this. Would you have told me about the letter if I hadn't seen you get it? He thought before he answered, and he answered out of his thoughts. He said slowly, I don't believe I would. I wouldn't. I wouldn't because I would have known perfectly well that you'd have thought it funny. No answer he could have made could have more exasperated her. I don't believe I would. Deliberation. Something incomprehensible to her going on in his mind. And as a result of it, a statement that no one on earth, she felt, but he would have made. Anyone else would have said, boldly blustering, Of course I would have told you about the letter. She would have liked that. She would have disbelieved it, and she could have said, and enjoying saying she disbelieved it, or anyone else would have said furiously, No, I'm damned if I'd shown you the letter. She would have liked that. It would have affirmed her suspicions that there was something in it, and she wished her suspicions to be affirmed. Something justifiably incentive of anger, of resentment, of jealousy. Something she could understand, for she did not understand her husband. That was her grievance against him. She never had understood him. That den incident in the very earliest days of their marriage had been an intimation of a way of looking at things that to her was entirely exasperatingly inexplicable. And since then, increasingly year by year, her understanding had failed to follow him. He had retired farther and farther into himself. He lived in his mind, and she could by no means penetrate into his mind. His idea about things, his attitude toward things, were wholly exasperating, incomprehensible to her. It's like, she had once complained to her father, it's like having a foreigner in the house. Things in her expression went on in his mind, and she could not understand what went on in his mind, and it exasperated her to know that they were going on, and that she could not understand them. I don't believe I would. Characteristic. Typical expression for those processes of his mind that she could not understand. And then the reason. I wouldn't because I'd have known perfectly well that you'd have thought it funny. And exasperation on exasperation's head, he was right. She did think it funny. And by his very reply, for she knew him well enough, so exasperatingly well, to know that this was complete sincerity, complete truth, he proved to her that it was not really funny, but merely something she could not understand robbery of her fancy, her hope that it was something definite against him, something justifiably incentive of resentment, of jealousy. It was as if he had said, You can't understand a letter like this. There's nothing in it to understand. And that's just what you can't understand. Look here. You see my head? I'm in there. You can't come in. You don't know how to. I can't tell you how to. Nobody could tell you. And you wouldn't know what to make of it if you did get in. Exasperating. Insufferable. Unsupportable. She could not express her feelings in words. She expressed them in action. She arose violently and left the room. The whole of her emotion she put into the slam of the door behind her. 
The ornament shivered. A cup sprang off the bracket and dashed itself to pieces on the floor. Sabre regarded the broken cup much as if Sir Isaac Newton presumably regarded the fallen apple. He worked back from the cup through the events of the day, and through the events of the day returned to the cup. It interested him to find that the fragments on the floor were as logical a result of the movements of the day as they would have been getting the small hand-axe out of the woodshed, aiming a blow at the cup, and hitting the cup. He thought, I started to break that cup when I rustled the newspaper at breakfast. I went on when I suddenly came back and got into that niggling business over why I'd come back. Went on when I walked off to my room, after that letter business. Practically took up the axe when I couldn't say, Well, how's the garden home going on, at dinner? And smashed it when I chafed about Bagshaw an hour ago. Rum business, rotten business. That was the day's epitaph. But for the murder of the cup he found, gone to bed and lying awake, a culprit other than himself. He thought, It was meeting Nona that made me come home like that. But if that had been the first time I'd ever met Nona, I shouldn't have returned. So it goes back further than that, nine, ten years. The day she married Tybar. If she hadn't married Tybar, she'd have married me. The cup wouldn't have been broken. Nona broke that cup. End of chapter 4 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, voiceover-solutions.com